Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, Rebecca Patterson joins us. We are thrilled to have her with us. She's with Bridgewater, Director of Investment Research, but far more is her time on the street, bringing holistically together the foreign exchange market with everything else out there. Uh, Rebecca, wonderful to have you with us today. On Bitcoin, what did we learn this week? I put up there some of the dynamics, the silliness of it being a gold equivalent or a coin equivalent. What did we learn? Uh, I think uh, we got reaffirmation that it's a speculative asset and it still has a long ways to go to become a gold equivalent, to become a proper storehold of wealth, something that you can count on to have purchasing power over time that's going to have stable and relatively low volatility. This was not a low volatility week or so for Bitcoin, quite the contrary. Rebecca, do you see a generational divide between certain age groups who believe this is the new gold and other age groups that just do not? Anecdotally, yes. Anecdotally, it does seem that people who are looking for alternative uh, sources of cash, if you will, um, you do have a bit of a younger generation bias towards the cryptocurrencies versus gold. But, um, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's not the generation as much as the retail versus the institutional. The, the money that's going into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies today is still largely retail. Of course, you're getting a few more corporations, you're getting family offices, you're getting some hedge funds, but the large institutional money that's thinking about, do I want this as part of the diversifying assets in my portfolio to protect me from drawdowns, from, from bad periods of, of market stress, we're not there yet. It might get there over time, but it's not there yet. So this is still an asset that I think is primarily one to be used for return and speculation. Not over, to, time, not though, over time, though, Rebecca, do you think that investor conditioning kicks in? Many people will ask us when they're not familiar with financial markets and macro, why does the yen do so well when things get bad? And there are various ways of explaining that. But one of them is it just does well. It's worked <laughs> and it's worked historically. Do we need to be conditioned by this somehow to start believing it a little bit more? Well, I, I think over time, you, you could see that environment come together. And there's a couple of things I'd be watching. The big one right now is the regulatory ecosystem. It, you know, it, it's very immature still for cryptocurrencies. And after the uh, colonial pipeline hack paid for with crypto, the ransom was paid for crypto. I think you are going to see regulators in the U.S. focusing more on this, trying to make sure there isn't illicit activity, trying to increase transparency. That might make some holders of Bitcoin not want to own it anymore. They're there for the anonymity, but it could create an ecosystem that gives more um, credibility to it, more encouragement for large institutional players to come in. If they come in and you have another source of liquidity there, that could bring down volatility over time. That's the positive flywheel that I think could change how Bitcoin and, and perhaps other cryptocurrencies are perceived. Obviously, there's the environmental issues, too, which are, are clearly a problem for some investors. I think those things need to get addressed and the volatility needs to come down. 
But if those things can happen, I think this could evolve into some some type of digital gold, if you will. Rebecca, I want you to elaborate on the environmental concerns because Elon Musk of Tesla highlighted this and you highlighted this in a recent research report showing that Bitcoin uses up more energy than, say, even uh, Switzerland. When you take a look at the energy consumption, it's basically a nation unto itself when it comes to this area. Can this be solved? How big of a concern is this for certain investors? Well, increasingly, investors are focusing on on environmental and other ESG um, issues. So, so it is an increasing concern for a lot of large institutions. There are ways it can be addressed. You can see changes in the technology used in Bitcoin, for example, that could reduce energy usage. Uh, you can see the type of energy used, you know, more of a focus on renewable energy. That could also be a positive trend. There's also another option here, which is that another cryptocurrency that has lower energy usage, but also some of the positive characteristics like limited supply, you could see that supplant Bitcoin. Just because Bitcoin is the dominant currency today doesn't mean it'll always be. So I think there are some different paths, but over time, it's going to get addressed one way or another. Meanwhile, Rebecca, I want to pick up on something that John was talking about, because I know that this dovetails into the inflation call that Bridgewater has had, this whole cash is trash and uh, that Ray Dalio was talking about. But moving forward, that inflation is going to be more of a threat. What do you make of the move recently lower in longer term break even rates? Basically, longer term inflation expectations have come down even as we get this robust data. Yeah, I mean, our... This is such an unusual time, right? We're seeing the biggest U.S. boom um, that we've had in decades. And we have so many different cross currents, given the reopenings coming out of the pandemic, demand rising faster than some supply can meet it. And you just mentioned that a few minutes ago in the European PMI data, that that it's hard to have a high degree of confidence how this is going to play out. But as we look at the year or so ahead, we see a, a decent amount of risk that inflation could keep rising. It's already rising, but stay higher for longer. And part of that is the supply taking a while to catch up with the increasing demand. And part of it is more structural forces. You know, globalization, which has helped reduce inflation for years, that's been plateauing and, and could possibly reverse a little bit. The, the trend towards capital over labor that's starting to reverse a little bit as you see higher wages, higher minimum wages, et cetera. Um, and so if you see some of these secular forces slowing or reversing somewhat and these cyclical forces, we think you could be in a slightly higher inflation mm-hmm. environment. So the day-to-day moves aside, I think you want to be looking as an investor, does my portfolio have enough protection if that risk becomes reality? And this isn't just as the Fed likes to say, transitory inflation. Rebecca, I want to get in trouble with Ray Dalio, so I'm going to ask a rude question, and you're such a pro, you'll give me an honest answer. Right now, stock-bond correlations are really quite odd. That goes into rate parity strategies and such. What is the duration, the timeline of this odd correlation where it begins to affect portfolios? We're hearing short-term, no big deal. When does no big deal become a big deal? So, Tom, I think I don't think that's a rude question at all. I think you're you're highlighting a couple things that that are worth unpacking a little bit. Um, first, when we think about risk parity strategies, all weather, which is our our strategy, it's it's a strategic long term asset allocation. What we're trying to do is get rid of some of the volatility that can come with changes in economic environments, growth, inflation. And what that allows us to do is get more steady returns over time. And then we can compound that, which is, as Einstein said, isn't it the eighth wonder of the world? 
Um, so that's a very different strategy than, say, Pure Alpha, where we're really focusing on uncorrelated return streams that are over shorter time periods. It's more tactical. Um, for, for folks who are thinking about a risk parity strategy, remember, it's never been determined on one asset or one country. It's going to be a balanced mix of assets. So even if bond yields rise, um, there are going to be other bonds that are still attractive. China, for example, the 10-year yield there is still 3%, much more normal policy mix going on. And then you're going to have other assets that are going to give you that diversification and that balance, no matter what the environment is. But the other thing, Tom, that I think is really important that you just said is about correlation. And I think you know, every 60-40 portfolios over the last couple of decades have just been able to sit back and let it roll in. You've had rising stocks and falling bond yields. And today there is a chance that you're going to see that relationship break apart. And you need to understand why that's happening and then what you do about it. If we think that relationship is breaking apart in part because of inflation, then you want to make sure that you don't have too many bonds. You want to make sure that you also have other assets to protect you against that risk, whether it's gold, which has been recovering nicely recently, inflation linked bonds, even equities that give you more of a steady cash flow over time that aren't going to be as um, vulnerable to that duration issue. Rebecca, always smart and always enjoy your contribution. Rebecca Patterson there, Bridgewater Director of Investment Research. One of our high points of the day to get you recalibrated on global Wall Street and particularly American Wall Street. He is, after saying 200,000 jobs will be jettisoned, truly an exile on Wall Street. Michael Mayo joins us with Wells Fargo from his decades of work, including a dark day with Credit Suisse years ago to now holding court at Wells Fargo, head of U.S. <laughs> large cap bank research. Mike Mayo with us. Mike, I've got to rip up the script. This is all anybody's talking about, and you are the one to give perspective. Can a duo run consumer banking? They're going to try that at J.P. Morgan. Is it feasible? I'm never a fan of dual heads. Having said that, J.P. Morgan cultivates a culture of collaboration. So whoever collaborates better is ironically, the one who could ultimately win. Uh, we have two women who are in contention to take Jamie Dimon's job. Having said that, you know when Jamie Dimon retires? N plus five. <laughs> it, you, add, add five years to whenever you ask him the question. So I don't think it's happening anytime soon. I think that, that the right. board wants him to stay. Investors want him to stay. But you do have two women who are in contention. If the two women are in contention, two men in contention, you know, let's be honest, this is absolutely original stuff. To your research note, which stopped Wall Street a few days ago, how will the dominant J.P. Morgan consumer franchise and adapt and adjust to automation? to digital banking and the rest that you highlight? Well, J.P. Morgan is a microcosm of the broader industry. And for you, Tom, I'm going to the classics. I'm going to the Greek philosopher Plato, who said, necessity is the mother of invention. Banks have no choice but to get more efficient, to use automation, and to streamline. So whether it's J.P. Morgan or any other bank, even though they're opening up branches and hiring advisors and all sorts of people over the next 10 years we expect headcount to decline by 200,000 jobs up to 200,000 jobs for the banking industry and that's because you have automation in the back office digitization in the front <clears throat> office and because banks have no choice 
as they compete against big tech, big retail, and a bunch of non-banks that have a lot less regulation. How's that going to go down politically, Mike? Uh, Not always well, uh, but it can be better than in the past because with natural attrition, banks can try to walk that fine line between becoming a lot more efficient and without destroying their political and regulatory reputations and also their ESG scores because everyone's watching – you know, if you fire a lot of people, that hurts your Interesting. Uh, ESG scores. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a tough job. It's a different job to be a bank CEO today. In the past, it was about creating, you know, generating uh, sustained long-term value. Today, it's doing that and a lot more. You need to be more attuned to issues around climate uh, and social issues um, and diversity. And so it's a, a bigger challenge. Mike, what does that mean for the physical presence on Main Street? Uh, well, a lot less branches. You're going to see a lot less branches and a lot less people per branch. And uh, they call it DIY, do-it-yourself, and also more do-it-together uh, services. So you'll see banks you know, working with customers that show them how to adapt uh, to using more digital tools. And the pandemic turbocharged the tech revolution at banks. You can't force a change in customer behavior but the pandemic did so, and that played into the banking industry's strategic uh, playbook for the next five to ten years. Mike, when you talk about competition from a number of different sources, we should also talk about competition from the Federal Reserve itself or from the U.S. government. Uh, the Federal Reserve saying yesterday that they're going to put out a report on the U.S. digital dollar debate this summer that could disintermediate the big banks. How much are you paying attention to this? Well, you, you have to pay attention to this. I mean, there's threats to banks, and disintermediation of banking goes back, you know, half a century. And so you first saw that with uh, traditional bank loans getting disintermediated to the, the capital markets. And then you've seen that with some of the, the fintech players and the payments business. And so you have to watch, you know, anything related to, you know, digital uh, currencies or anything else. Having said that, I think the banking industry's business model resiliency for the largest banks is underappreciated. And a deposit at a large bank is different than a deposit at another bank. It's driven by a hybrid distribution system that's physical and digital. It's driven by multi-products, whether it's a checking account, savings account, credit card, mortgage, investment. So, um, yes, you have to watch this, but the depth of banks has been greatly exaggerated the last few uh, decades. Mike, perhaps the death of banks, but just quickly here, I'm wondering what you think in terms of mergers and acquisitions. How consolidated could the industry get as they cut what you estimate to be 200,000 jobs? Absolutely. There should be an acceleration in bank mergers. Goliath is winning. The largest banks have scale. The smaller banks need to generate that scale. That was mentioned as the number one reason for the, the biggest recent merger in the last few years, now known as, as Truist. Um, so we wouldn't be surprised to see half the number of banks out there you know, over the next decade. Mike, More just, mergers to come. Just before we run, Mike, a lot has been made of ESG and diversity, and you touched on that yourself in this conversation. You were the one to bring it up. Why do you think that wasn't a big part of the consideration for Morgan Stanley's shakeup? Look, ultimately, um, you know, the ability of managers uh, to you know, generate the returns, help the firm as a whole, um, and represent the firm, you know, drives these decisions. And so, you know, Jamie Dimon didn't select the two women co-heads of consumer 
uh, who are likely the next one of those or the next successor because they're women. It's because they're, they're the most capable. So yeah. I think the chips fall where they will. Well said, Mike. Thank you. Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo head of U.S. large cap bank research on a situation on Wall Street. Terry Haynes joins us now with Pangea Policy, their founder here and a good uh, student of the dynamics of Washington. Terry, there is isolationism in America. It's always been there, back to the founders, a certain character, let's say, in the pre-World War II era, all sorts of shades after World War II, a unique Trump isolationism, a sense there. And now with Israel-Gaza, and even with this announcement from the IMF for a cash call, a new isolationism in Washington. What does that look like? Uh, Tom, good morning. Uh, what I think it looks like is a essentially a rebalancing of international uh, responsibilities with uh, w with domestic responsibilities. There's a, I think there's a sense, and there's been a sense for about five or six years that, frankly, I think predates Trump, uh, that we've been spending too much time and effort thinking globalism is going to solve all our problems, and instead understanding that it's exacerbated a lot. Uh, what I'll shorthand is the flyover country problem, and uh, flyover uh, part uh, nation problem, and. Uh, uh, and uh, we ought to be spending some more time with that. So, you know, we're back to the old wrangle of exactly how much time and effort we ought to be spending on, on domestic priorities as opposed to worrying about the international. And, uh, you know, frankly, that complicates policymaking across the board. Do you ascribe to the tradition that foreign policy doesn't matter when people waltz into the 2022 or 2024 booth? Or does it matter this time around? I think it matters to them always. Frankly, there there are always issues that uh, that, that differentiate candidates, uh, and you know we we see a lot of those happening right now. You've already uh, you've already hit on it with, uh, with part of it with Middle East policy. Uh, China China policy, of course, is a very big and you know frankly bipartisan initiative at this point. Uh, but anybody that wanted to change China policy at this point would be looked at very skeptically. Uh, you know, the eyeballs on Russia, same thing. Uh, just to name three off the top. But yeah, it does matter to, to it does matter to voters. Terry, let's jump to June, the president's first big overseas trip, and he's going over to Europe. What do you think the priorities are? Uh, the priorities for them are uh, they, they want to show, firstly, they want to show off uh, that you know, the, their America is back theme, that they, they, they want uh, to show cozy relationships across the board uh, with the European Union, number one. Number two, they actually want to show how they're uh, moving the ball forward, and they're going to have to get past this uh, uh, this Nord Stream problem and put it into a broader context to show how that decision uh, to waive sanctions there uh, is positive for other aspects of the European uh, project. And third, they want to show a united front against uh, Russia, but more importantly, China. Uh, that's where they go. They've got a Germany problem, haven't they, with that in mind, Terry? Not so much as a yeah, pan-European problem, it's a Germany problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, some wags in Brussels always say if Hitler had understood that all he had to do was to conquer everybody economically, uh, you know, <laughs> as, as Germany has with the, the EU, uh, you know, the, we wouldn't have had the Second World War. But the, uh, the more important part of this is that uh, you've got a new government. You've got more instability in Germany for the first time in a long time. You've got a new government, a new way of looking at things. Uh, some people say a loss of confidence. 
so that is th- those are all uh, variables that the administration is going to have to work with to resolve. So it's a higher mountain than it was just a few months ago. Meanwhile, here at home, Terry, one reason why I love reading your reports is because you actually assign probabilities to the likelihood of certain legislative initiatives getting passed. Where are we in terms of the probability of a bipartisan infrastructure bill getting passed in the near term? Well, thank you, Lisa. And, and, you know, I've been non-consensus, was non-consensus about 60, 65 percent for some time on that. I think that's coming together uh, in a uh, kind of uh, 800 billion to 1 trillion range at the top. There's clearly a desire to want to do something there. And uh, on a bipartisan basis, it amounts to a plus up of about 100 percent over what we would be spending on infrastructure anyway. So it's not insignificant, but it would take a, uh, quite a while to roll out. Uh, the bigger question is that, you know, whether or not uh, it's going to be able to roll out faster. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's going to happen. So the, the people won't see and businesses won't see a difference uh, to that uh, very much. And I also think it makes uh, the, the what the administration calls the families package. Uh, which is uh, most of the rest of us call everything else, uh, that much uh, harder to get. Uh, Democrats will understand that the last train is going to leave the station. They'll want everything they want in it. Uh, People tend to forget that the Affordable Care Act got passed on reconciliation, but it took something like five months after the House had first passed it to finalize it, and and that's a positive case. So, you know, Washington's going to fool around with uh, the families package into the winter and probably, you know, I'd say at least into the winter. What's the likelihood of that getting passed? Uh, I, I have that at uh, very much below 50 percent at this point. I'll give you, I'll give you 30 percent. It's alive and kicking, yeah. but, uh, but I don't see the path forward for it right now. Jerry, we had the privilege of speaking to the Republican from Montana yesterday, Steve Daines, and it was a really good conversation. I am uh-huh. fascinated by how you translate the middle ground of American politics as personified by John Tester and Steve Daines in Montana. What's the future of the middle in America if Montana's living it? <laughs> um, you know what? Those are two very smart members. I've had the pleasure to spend uh, a fair amount of time with Senator Tester over the years, and uh, uh, he's a very capable senator. The uh, and and somebody that's really looking out for things. The you know the. The uh, the way people uh, present themselves these days is uh, market themselves in politics is polarized. They, they'd say necessarily so, but there's an awful lot of people trying to figure out what the middle ground is and uh, and work on it from there. Uh, we're losing some of those good people, people like Rob Portman and Pat Toomey, uh, but as you point out, people like uh, Tester and Danes are still there, and uh, you know between him, people like uh, Tim Scott, for example. Uh, I think there's there's still an awful lot of people in the Congress, particularly in the Senate, uh, that are looking to try to figure out exactly uh, how to deal with the what we'll call the problems of the middle uh, and uh, and improve things. So, you know, I I remain optimistic about that in the long term. Mm. Terry, good to hear from you. As always, Terry Haynes there, Pangea Policy Founder on the latest down in D.C.
Right now, Lisa Bramowitz and I welcome you to, without question, your most important conversation of the day, because it's what we all do as we break bread before the pandemic, in this pandemic, and coming out of the pandemic. There is flat out no one in the restaurant and food business who is committed to optimism more than Daniel Balut. He joins us this morning with an 11,000-foot triumph at Grand Central Station and the new Vanderbilt Tower. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Le Pavillon and the success. This is huge, huge optimism. How urgent is it for you to fill every seat starting yesterday? Well, thank you, Tom, for having me and good morning. Um, of course, it's huge to open a new restaurant, always for anyone, but uh, it is huge in this time because we really feel that we are coming out of the pandemic and it's time to bring the city back together. And I think for me, uh, it's not about how many seats can we feel and all that, but just bring back jobs, bring back hope and, and have the opportunity to create something new and unique. And one Vanderbilt, the project finish on time, finish on budget throughout the year, the pandemic, it never, we had slowed down, but we never stopped. And I think that's, um, that's something which I'm very proud of to be associated with SL Green and the project there because uh, the project kept on going. When you came to New York, you couldn't get into the fancy restaurants. You were a piddling chef and nobody wanted to talk to you, anything like that. I know now you pick up the phone and you get my table uh, instantly. What I want to know is, will we change how we eat? after this horrific pandemic, whether the fancy or the less fancy, do you sense that will change the way we approach food? I don't think so. I think people want to go back to indulge. People want to go back to be pampered, to be uh, to discover new restaurants, to be able to enjoy the food to the fullest. And of course, we are very conscious and uh, we have to keep our safety uh, as a priority for us, the staff, we keep wearing masks. We try to not make maybe so many dishes who can be shareable. And uh, and uh, we try to really respect also distance and timings and all that so guests feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. But people are anxious to go out. And uh, I see in my restaurant at Daniel or Barboulou also the terrace is so much in demand now. It's fantastic. Yeah, Chef Balud, whenever you walk down the street in New York City, you see all of the restaurants absolutely flooded with people looking to get back. There is a question, though, and you are not seeing that in Midtown. In Midtown, it still is a bit of a ghost town as offices still try to bring some workers back and have a questionable time frame. What does the power lunch of the post-pandemic era look like? Well, right now it looks like nothing because there's not that many restaurants open for power lunch. But I think uh, there is definitely a buzz in Midtown. And I see around Grand Central, uh, I see people coming back to the office. And we have people coming out of work and coming to have a drink at the bar at Le Pavillon. But uh, so that means they must have been working around there. And uh, I think Power Lunch will come back in September, resume when the all the hotels are open, New York is back, and I think the office will bring back people because they have to. Well, when you talk, uh, Chef Boulud, about the cities that are going to be the culinary leaders going forward, what do you hear from your peers, from your fellow chefs, in terms of which cities are the best ones to open uh, a higher-end restaurant? 
Well, I think New York City is still the number one city for sure. I mean, there is, of course, you can mm -hmm. always be a big fish in a small pound, but in New York City, I think we have the capability for welcoming tourists and business and entertainment and sports in than no other city can. And of course, there is the hype of Miami, there is the hype, but when it comes to fine dining and when it comes to all dining, I think New York City, including all neighborhood, it's amazing. And, um, you know, people are craving to come back to New York City. I see the double deck bus passing by the pavilion because it's on the second floor. I see the double deck bus full of people. And I'm like, wow, is there some tourists back? And I hear mm -hmm. that concierge are calling us and telling us their hotel are reopening. So it's, it's, it's a good sign. I mean, right. just a question of, for the uh, all the office building to be able to bring back their staff and certainly the unemployment to resume so we can bring people back to work. The romance, Danielle, of, of, of being at Grand Central Station and looking out that window to the Chrysler building, it speaks back to Le Pavillon of 1941, 1942 as well. Boy, have we changed how we eat now. What's your biggest challenge in developing repeat customers? What is the food angle, the menu angle that well, you need to do in 2021 to keep them coming in? Interestingly enough, yes, uh, vegetable is the rage. But uh, 24 <clears throat> years ago, when I opened Cafe Boulou in New York, I had already a vegetarian menu. And so this, I expanded more. And so Le Pavillon, the menu will be 50% seafood, 40% vegetable, and 10% of selected high quality meat. And so there is definitely a trend between, um, I wanted to have a certain uh, focus on the locality. So the mm -hmm. seafood is from New England for the most part, and also vegetable within the five state, state around New York. And I think uh, this will be our focus there. But um, in general, people are craving for good food, good wine, and of course, healthy food. That's our yeah. responsibility. A colossal financial risk. Really, really interesting. Daniel Bullard, congratulations on launching Le Pavillon. And just really, really interesting to see in the coming months as uh, New York City uh, comes back. Thank you so much. Daniel Bullard, the acclaimed restauranteur. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.